50 years ago. The show that looks back to the episode that aired in 1970 and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, The Silurians, episode 6. It's a bit sobering, this one. I'm Ben. I'm Luke. And I'm Nick. And here we are, and here we go, into the news from 1970. Firstly, we're going to talk about Rhodesia. It has declared itself a republic, on specifically on Monday the 2nd of March, and severed its last tie with the United Kingdom in doing so. 341,000 white citizens are maintaining political power over the 4.5 million non-white residents. We talked about Rhodesia declaring independence in 1967, and here we are again with a final independence push that makes a wobbly African nation. It's rather interesting that it appears that the the government... so. Labour at the time, the Labour MPs were more angry about the idea that they declare themselves a republic than the Conservative MPs, which is a bit baffling to a modern observer. The Foreign Secretary was being all upset about it, as were Labour backbenchers. Some Conservative backbenchers are upset about it, but the Conservative frontbench, of which didn't include Douglas Hume because he was away, but you had um, Reginald Maudling and other Foreign Office spokesmen there. Hmm. And they didn't say anything, apparently, really. Or, well, Maudling said something, but not much. So they were leaving up to the backbenchers of their party to be, you know, give howls of rage. Also in the news this week, there's a new pirate radio station, Nord Sea International, which is found to have transmissions on the medium wave, which interfere with marine broadcasts in the North Sea. Luke, you can tell us about the varying political reactions to this. Why is this important? Well, essentially, in April, the Labour Party decide we're going to start blocking this because Labour are pro-state and therefore pro-state broadcasting. However, Tories are more free market and therefore were at least considered more supportive of the pirates. And as a result, you end up with young rebels who are essentially right wing, which is opposite of how you would think of it nowadays. You'd think they were more socialists, say. And and look, this sort of plays into the point I was just talking about now, about how things are swapped about, where Labour are more angry about people, um, a former colony becoming a republic, than the Conservatives are. And of course, that seems a bit absurd now that there is a Republican who is still the leader of the Labour Party, as we speak in February 2020. Absolutely. There's a strange shift that's going on here compared to what we would generally think nowadays. And whilst there's also that point, there's also the point that said Labour Party are still pro-state broadcasters, given that the Conservatives in February 2020 want to make drastic overhauls to the BBC. Yeah, pretty much. They're looking for more free market stuff nowadays as well, I suppose. It's just a natural conclusion of what people are prioritising at each time. This week's news dictates a lot about change and non-change. And here's yet another story depicting change and non-change in views from 50 years ago to now. There's a Human Rights Society meeting in Glasgow, which attempts to oppose any attempt by MPs 
to introduce a bill legalising euthanasia. And Nick, you can tell us more about this less than impressed professor of midwifery. The arguments held against euthanasia are pretty much the same that you still get seen now in this last decade that we've had. Well, so what it's talking about is how it's, 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 it's a slippery slope to killing people. And, uh, well, there is an argument there. So it's like it's got Muggeridge and, you know, of fame from that video of uh, where he berates the Monty Python people uh, for making Life of Brian, which is one of the best comedy films of all time. That was him. Malcolm Muggeridge. Yeah, he's in this article. Yes. Oh, I thought it was. I know they definitely had a conversation with a Church of England bishop. Yeah, they they did, and it was Malcolm Muggeridge as well who was there. Uh, the, okay. Yeah, so here he is, about what a decade earlier, also still god bothering. Um, he they, he does compare it to um, abortion, and so does a doctor as well. They talk about uh, so this is clearly a pro-life doctor who's upset about the idea of abortion clinics, and he starts linking that to euthanasia. And so they link it to a slippery slope to an authoritarian regime that wants to kill people. But there is still the argument of... So with respect to the abortion thing, there is still a hint of religiousness there that exists now as well. I feel like a lot of the arguments against euthanasia are born from religion. Specifically Christianity or other Abrahamic... Abrahamic interpretation of... Hippocratic oaths, etc., etc. We still have the same debates now. Uh, now people won't mention the Nazis by name now, which they do in this article. But there is still this idea: oh, that's a slippery slope to a state that will start killing its citizens. Blah blah blah. If I may bring out an example, we have uh, literally in this week in which we are recording a certain number ten vetting. He was a super forecaster. Yes. Well, well this oh. is one of. Cummings weirdos, isn't it? Yes, but he was talking oh, specifically about biscuit. eugenics, and my tenuous link is Nazis. Yeah, isn't it, isn't it nice that eugenics, which no one believes anymore, was credible anyway, and then he immediately brings up eugenicist views. Well, I mean, someone dug them up. And these like, views were within the last five years and on multiple sites. So. How did dude who has crazy ideas get hired by number 10? Yes, it is a very interesting, if tenuous, point that seems to um, highlight the quote, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And these appear to be true, especially in these news articles from 50 years ago, when you compare and contrast them to what's happening nowadays. That was the news, and now we shall get into the Silurians, episode six. Hey, kids! You want to see hundreds of people die from an alien virus spreading across locations you recognise? Well, here you go. And we can definitely see here that the appealing to adults aspect of season seven, because a lot of adults were found to be watching Doctor Who at the end of season six, is definitely coming to light. And we're watching the Doctor battle with microscopes and testing for antidotes whilst the world dies around him. Lovely and adult. What I love here is... Uh, this is probably my favourite part about the episode. They've gone overboard on the whole let's get rid of uh, technobabble and sci-fi that it doesn't relevant in is more like fantasy than actual science fiction. And they've totally gone the opposite route and they're now they've gone from very soft to very hard sci-fi here. The Doctor uses a microscope as a microscope would be used at the time 
and he uses lab equipment of the time to, you know, find an antidote. It's not particularly tense drama, let's be honest here. But that's why they intersperse the brig on the phone shouting at people because it's got to seem, ah, you know, there's something going on. There's got to be tension, yeah. Yeah. But it's great that the Doctor is using real science and he's not just holding around a magic wand and going, oh, I've got the answer. Now I've shrunk myself and I'm going to go into my brain to fight this giant thing that turns into a giant prawn. Yeah, and that wasn't even uh, ten years, years later. This. Doctor Who does very well with going between sci-fi fantasy and sci-fi realism. Um, it's almost bipolar. Well, I absolutely agree. You know, all of the science takes place in a human laboratory with human drugs and... Have they said the word TARDIS at all in this serial? No. No, they haven't. So. You know, he might as well just be man. You know, man with good immune system. It's all, Ex- it's all... Eccentric man as well, because, you know, he's there bothering the people setting up the equipment. Hurry up, you contractors. <laughs> I'm going as fast as I can! The, the only point where him being an alien is relevant is that's why he's morally superior because as i said in the last episode humans and silurians are mirror images of each other at least morally speaking and he's and he's probably different biological makeup but again that's just glossed over really yeah and the main thing is you say look he's he is just a clever man who has strong immune system (laughs) very down-to-earth doctor who's going to fight a virus for the next 20 minutes why not look at that in more detail? So the dead Major Baker has infected a hospital, and all the doctors, and the nurses too, so it's placed into quarantine by the Brigadier at gunpoint. Yay, military. The Doctor and Liz are on the search for the cure, having been given the bacteria samples by the old Silurian. Even the Doctor's inoculated with antibiotics to ward it off, as he works in the research centre. Everyone's inoculated, except that Dr Lawrence because he's denying everything. Oh, and Masters too, because he's already travelled back to London, spreading the infection everywhere. Good luck travelling on British Rail. Liz attempts to be independent, but the Brigadier says, no, you're going to help me man the phones. And I guess, because the Brig's handling the crisis, we can pass that over. But it's a nice attempt at feminism. Liz actually forces the Doctor to have the the antibacterials and... Uh, but she forces him to because he goes, no, 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 it's ridiculous. But he still does it, so. And this isn't the first time in a medical capacity that she has some sort of influence over the Doctor. But I'll come back to that later. Okay. The, the biggest point I had about this scene was, do we still get country hospitals like this? At the very beginning of the episode. This is the second serial in a row where we've had country hospitals. Do we still get them like this? Uh, well, seems... thanks to Harriet Jones, she introduced new legislation regarding cottage hospitals. <laughs> of course she did. Of course that was a throwaway line in the Christmas Invasion article. It wasn't a... No, it was World War Three. Oh, God. Uh, of course did she really... <laughs> yeah, no, it's what she keeps um, saying to the cabinet. And then, who cares what his name? Fat guy says... For God's sake, woman, get some perspective. I'm busy. And we're supposed to hate him because Harriet Jones wants to fight for her cottage hospitals. I I love RTD just slightly more now because he's obviously talking about 
this episode, like he's talking about the well, Soviet the, the third Doctor era. I mean, all yeah, all and the cottage, the cottage hospital in Spearhead from Space. Yes, Bad cottage hospitals. <laughs> I am not calling this episode Cottage Hospital. Briggs ready to fight the Silurians. The Doctor still wants peace, but the brash young Silurian is in charge now, so there's going to be fighting between the Silurians and the humans. Dr. Lawrence is still holding on and being a very obstinate person, annoying Liz for no particular reason, and then Unit and the Silurians have a little fight. Not neither, such a caricature. Well, I can't answer that one. Why I think Dr. Lawrence is such a caricature is because at the end, he snaps under the pressure of his career. This whole time, he's been building and building and building, and it's all he can fixate upon. And eventually, it gets to him. He doesn't even notice his health. He doesn't notice anything around him. He shuts out everything except what he's focused on. And that could be a commentary on people who are just so single-minded on their profession to the complete blindness of the reality of the situation. It definitely trumps my my explanation for it is that you remember the Silurians could induce a mass psychosis in the nuclear reactor, you know, where Dr. Lawrence has been for a quite considerable amount of his years. Do you think he might have just finally snapped? But yeah, it's because he's a career person. He's career centric. I think, well, mine works as an out-of-universe explanation. Yours kind of works as an in-universe explanation, I guess. Yes, I, 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 am, I am trapped inside the in-universe box. Yes. <laughs> I, I suspect, yeah, that's probably the intention of Malcolm Hulk, isn't it? That, oh, okay, so the Silurians have brainwashed him or, you know, made him gone crazy, but... Or at least influenced him slightly. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, and so, but... The real subtext of it is what you've said, Luke. Probably a, a fierce criticism of people he knew, middle-class professionals who mm. put their career on a pedestal, and he probably saw that quite a lot, being a writer, and his commie brain hated it. <laughs> Stop taking my success. Military and government intervention occurs. With the base guarded, and unit and Silurians fighting in the caves, the young Silurian looks for an alternative way into the research centre. The plague arrives in London, which is nothing sort of genius television, terrifying unsuspecting members of the public, as the cast and crew die left, right and centre. Acting, don't you love it? And Masters dies before he can convey his information about the Silurians to the government. It's strange to think that there was a time when it was difficult to find somebody, because nowadays there's CCTV everywhere. It's strange to think that the army is... This unable to be practical when there's an army person stationed outside our home day and night. I mean, in the days of police lineups and Shaw Taylor appearing on ATV going, can you spot this criminal for us, please? Because we have no information whatsoever. So it's 50 years hence that uh, the Metropolitan Police started using facial recognition techniques. Hmm. And random third party companies as well. Well, of course. I mean, everything's privatised in, in the present, Ben as well as, I guess... Quite. The Doctor uses blood samples to test his various palliative cures, and we see the process in painstaking detail, and there's a lot of dead air and no talking, which is a very interesting choice. But so is the line, some of these drugs are so new we don't even know their properties yet. There are very many connotations to this. Does medical science work like that? Uh, maybe probably what it should have said is, 
Some of these drugs are so many we don't even know their effects on humans yet. Because they should have at least tested them on rats at this point. I feel like that's probably the point maybe Malcolm Hulk wanted to get through, but it was perhaps okay. script edited to sound more, oh my god, we these are so new, we don't know anything about them, sort of thing. Or a but, line reading error. But why does the doctor say, we? He's not a human. He knows all this stuff because he's, he's ah, you know, he's a foreign. This is back when the doctor, even though he's a really super clever alien, why, why would he know about Earth medicine of the 70s? That or he's already gone native. I mean, the only reason he knows a little bit about medicine is because he studied Lidster. It's just, I think we've gotten so used to the Doctor becoming an omnipotent after this point, based from Tom Baker onwards, that we're, we're used to him knowing everything, but up to this point, the Doctor isn't omnipotent. He's just, he's some alien traveller, If he's and he's only from the future. The plot demands him to know. Well, yeah, so here it demands he doesn't know about human medicine of the 70s and that. Yeah, and, he's pro- and he is talking to Liz, so probably humouring her as well. Yeah, he's, he's desperately focusing on the task in hand, is that using human medicine to stop an apocalypse, but there you go. Well, yeah, because if you, if you just could just conjure up the cure, then the episode ends here. And just, just, <laughs> there's no drama, there's nothing, nothing interesting. So hmm. when you talk about the genius television... Of the railway station. Yep. This is basically a rehash of the spearhead from the space bit in, in a good way. In as much as it's learnt the lesson of that, which is, oh, if you go to a public place that looks like anywhere in Britain, you bring the terror home. So the idea that the plague is spreading through railway stations is pretty terrifying. Indeed, it's going to cross oceans. But of course, this isn't an entirely new thing for Doctor Who, because, you know the first point of sequel bait, the Dalek invasion of Earth, brings the Dalek to London. When Masters dies, he dies in front of a block of flats, uh, a modern one, you know, built in the last ten years from when this was broadcast. Mm. Having infected so, the girl in a miniskirt on the way. Yeah, so you were really planted in this. It could happen anywhere nearby you. Live. That could have been anywhere. Uh, I mean, mm. to me, it looks like it's by the motorway where they are in the thick of it, episode one. But there we are. <laughs> course you would <laughs> that's for you luke didding i liked it that could be my flat that could be where i live right now that could have happened just outside where i live it's terrifying that's sci-fi realism for you and it's very good at terrifying the living daylights out of you when you need to be time moves on in the episode and liz and the doctor narrow the drugs down but they're tiring and the virus is fighting the antibiotics an infected Dr. Lawrence has a final showdown with the Brigadier, and Peter Miles shows how bloody good and active he is, before Nida finally dies. At last, a cure, and just in time, because the virus is crossing oceans, probably on a cruise liner called the Diamond Princess. Hmm. Whilst the cure is being tested on a patient, the Silurians cut their way for a wall and kidnap the Doctor. But I'm not interested in that bit. I'm interested in another line. Shall we comment on the press tapping the Brigadier's phone? Yeah. In Spearhead from Space, you also have these relentless journalists as well. Why is the press such a strong force 
in this season so far? Press are sort of a bit demonised, not in the same way that they're demonised now, but in a sense of where authority, people doff their cap to authority. Authority is actually respected. So these these are insolent press people who are like, because like the brigadier, he's the authority figure here, and he is a really good guy. So the press are actually getting in the way of the really good guy doing things. Mm. I, I just literally thought that this is really around the point of the explosion of tabloid journalism. And indeed, the brigadier goes, the daily what? And there's certain amounts of newspapers getting, beginning with the daily that we can possibly infer to. And, certain, and certainly that Australian newspaper baron is definitely going his rounds. Mm. I, I'm thinking I'm thinking of two. One begins with the with S and one begins with E. Yeah. Yeah. So seeing as what the role that the Daily E played yeah, in, let's say a certain. Well, obviously one of them's so left wing, they might as well have exhumed the bones of Malcolm Hulk. I, I'm more thinking about the one that uh, was uh, involved in a certain government scandal in 1963. <clears throat> Liz is the one who suggests the cure. Isn't she? The doctor doesn't go, well, that's wrong. He does it and then it's right. And he actually then claims credit. So, I mean, you know, man claims credit for woman's work. Uh, it's, it's not sort of, doesn't, doesn't he? Like, that's sort of what happens. Well, Liz goes, oh, why don't you try these two strains or whatever? And then the doctor's like, oh, could work. Does okay. it? It makes sense that super clever companion who is Oxbridge educated capable in all sorts of different fields, knows about this. Makes more sense. Doesn't matter that she's a woman, but it's good that in 1970 it's pretty enlightened to have a realistic woman coming up with the solutions. As opposed to a woman from the future, uh, that's a good thing that they they showed that with the Patrick Trump era. And also, uh, another point, antibiotics. They work in this. For the most part, yeah, they they slowly die off, but they don't have another inoculation. Hmm. As I said, you say that's the palliative, that's the ibuprofen or paracetamol to the actual cure. And what's just what's funny is, so it mostly works. And so this is long before we really have any worry about how antibacterials will start to fail because they're they're starting to fail now. Hmm. So this sort of virus actually be scarier now. And to some extent it is if only because sometimes because of media exposure. Yes, and, and it's wonderful timing that we happen to have COVID-19 raging around the world as we speak. <laughs> yep, because of course we were going to refer to that, because well, it's so blooming prevalent it's impossible not to. It, it is in the headlines every day, pretty much. Yep. Top story a lot of the days. Yeah. yeah. And and here we I, I'm pretty sure we've had I referred to this last episode about how the Chinese communist government mismanaged it at the beginning. But here we see that as well, where so not neither acts a lot like the Communist Party in China did initially, where they just rejected its existence. And that's what's allowed it to spread from this initial point throughout China. And then because it was throughout the country, it managed to spread outside of the country. And indeed, masters acts like other governments in that they allow them to be flown home and potentially carry the risk of infection. Yeah, yeah, because they think, oh, we're above being infected or whatever. Or they'd rather treat it on their own soil and get the credit. Exactly. It is quite interesting that 
this is being very prescient. And we did say this last week, but, you know, it's still extremely relevant now in mid-February. And I doubt it's going to go away, really. This is much worse than swine flu or SARS, the other two. Oh, and Ebola as well. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking forward to us covering, oh, I don't know, the launch of a rocket in March and, oh, I don't know, the end of the world in June. <laughs> we can but hope, but we shall see if timelines are so prevalent between 50 years ago and now as we go on throughout this series of Doctor Who 50 years ago. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to iTunes. You can leave positive comments there because it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe. We shall be back next week with the final episode of the Silurians, where we wonder, where do we store all those explosives? But until then, I've been Ben. I've been Luke. And I've been Nick. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>